Uh, good morning, my name is Anna Guerrero, and I'm the Director of Family Ministries here, and so excited to be sharing with you this morning. Um, but I will admit that a few weeks ago, I had to go for a walk on this one. Uh, I went for a walk in St. Edwards Park, um, because it has beautiful woods, and I grew up near the woods, and I often find comfort and, and solace in the woods. When, I go, when I'm having a hard time, that's where I go. So I went to St. Edwards Park, it was the first time hiking onto this new trail. I've kind of done the same one over and over, but I thought, this time, I need a little more time. So uh, I went off onto this new trail. And you know when you're hiking on a new trail and you're going through the woods and it's pretty thick forest and the trail suddenly turns from like this to like this and you keep thinking as you turn every corner, like, certainly I'm at the top. No, no, not yet. So it was kind of a hike like that. I made a few turns thinking, certainly I am almost to the top, and I wasn't, and I was kind of regretting my decision to take this new path. Uh, When I came around the corner at one such turn, and I stopped in my tracks, not just to grab my breath, that was also the reason I stopped, but uh, at this tree that I saw right in front of me, this tree kind of took my breath away because I've seen old stumps growing new trees before, but they were never this large. I couldn't even fit it in my camera. I tried multiple ways. Uh, But the most important part was looking at this root structure of this new tree growing over this old stump. And I was pretty shocked about this new life that was growing out of this old life. And the verse from 2 Corinthians 5.17 came to my mind almost immediately. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. In light of this passage today, because it's a big one, and there's lots of things that could have come up for any of us. They came up for me as I read through this scripture in in preparation. I have a few truths to share as we enter the message today. Truth. This message has been, this message is about hope for humanity in our relationships and God's restoration of relationships. Truth. This passage has been misinterpreted as hierarchical structure and is the lens many of us have read this and some other passages in the Bible. Some of us have experienced much hurt and harm through these type of interpretations. Truth. In this day and age, we are all challenged about what leadership looks like. Truth. Many in the room have trouble with being led and have experienced someone who leads unwisely or with an iron fist. Truth. Some of us here, myself included, have felt the power of leading with fear and authority. We see this in our secular culture as well as our, our church culture, and it is an abuse of power. Today, this message is for everyone. For everyone who needs to feel valued, heard, and cared for. For everyone who needs to be challenged to love and lead sacrificially. For anyone who's felt unseen, silenced, and undefended in our society. For children who need adults with wisdom and love to lead them. For parents who are feeling pushed by the everything goes culture to create healthy boundaries 
for wives who want a fulfilling and life-giving relationship with their spouse, for husbands who wonder what the key is to getting their wives to adore them, for everyone who wants to love God and love others, which is the greatest of all commandments. Our big idea today is this. God was and is restoring humanity under the headship of Christ, who gained that authority by obedience and submission to God his Father. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we uh, welcome you here in this place. And we look at this passage and, and are asking for your truth to speak through me to our hearts. May our ears be open and our hearts be open to receive what you would, you would have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this book of Ephesians, Paul's been writing to Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. And in the first three chapters, he spends a lot of time talking about who we are, setting up this whole passage about by first telling us who we are. It's so important to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. Now in chapters four through six, he's talking about how we should live. And Raul and Scott have kind of tackled two of those scriptures already by talking about this internal posture of our hearts, the change of our hearts, and what internal changes would have happened based on knowing who we are. But we're also going to look today a little bit more about who we are and how we should treat each other, the relationships around us. This is a a letter regarding the city of Ephesus, which we'll learn more about but it's pertinent to our own lives and relationships today. At point one, we're looking through this in a corrected lens. And the first lens I want to propose we have to look through is the lens of culture. Because brothers and sisters, whenever we read the Bible, we always have to closely examine who it was being written to. Who is it that Paul is writing to in Ephesus? So Ephesus is a Roman-ruled city, and it was a hierarchical structure, and a pagan society ruled by men who had full control of their households, which included their wives, their slaves, and their children. If you were not the head of the household, you were basically property. This meant marriages weren't for love, but they were societal purpose. And most men found companionship outside of marriage. Marriage was in a state of crisis. In Ephesus. The only authority a woman had was over her children and household, but that was actually still subject to her husband's headship and the authority over her. And in the case of male children, it was for life. Slaves were indentured to their masters for life and treated inhumane. As part of the pagan culture, on top of this, this is a pagan city, as part of the pagan culture, the deity goddess of Artemis was in Ephesus. Artemis was responsible in that culture for blessing you with everything, with children, with success, with safety, with crops, health, well-being. Every area of ancient life in Ephesus was controlled by Artemis. 
So the people of Artemis, the people that worshipped Artemis, would take an entire month to worship this deity. And people, millions of people from all over would come to the city of Ephesus in celebration of Artemis. And in order to please and receive a blessing from Artemis, because she was the deity of uh, fertility and virginity, who knows how those two go together, but they they do here, Uh, you had to sleep with her many prostitutes in order to receive a blessing. This is a very dark culture that Paul is talking to. What we hear and see about Ephesus is a fallen humanity problem. It started in Genesis 3 with the fall. And it set up these hierarchical structures, and we see these kind of structures in the Roman society and today. Leadership that implores fear, not love. We start in verse 15 today because it is the beginning of a very long sentence that often gets broken up in our English language and caused some pretty serious confusion. Many Bibles stop in the middle at verse 20, and then they subtitle the Christian household, and then they move on to verse 21 about mutual submission. But the true sentence goes from verse 15 to 28. And Paul is setting up two key ideas here. What it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What is the external behavior that's happening with being filled with the Holy Spirit? And how do we submit out of respect for Christ? I'm going to read the passage 15 to 21 again. So be careful to live your life wisely, not foolishly taking advantage of every opportunity because these are evil times. Because of this, don't be ignorant, but understand the Lord's will. Don't get drunk on wine, which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit in the following ways. Speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music to the Lord in your hearts. Always give thanks to God the Father in everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submit to each other out of respect for Christ. So what are the things that, you, that would be evidence of this? Is speak to each other in truth. Worship the Lord. Give thanks. And the final is to submit to one another out of respect for Christ. An old tra- translation would have said the fear of Christ. But this translation is saying respect. Now notice... This word submission is part of being filled with the Holy Spirit and is one to to another and in direct relationship with our posture towards Christ. It is not in relationship to any gender, but is how we as Christians are to act towards each other. We're being called to, um, to mutuality, all humanity under Christ. This is not hierarchical because we know that in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, God created man and woman in God's own image. Both sexes together represent perfectly who God is. Paul is teaching about these Christ-like relationships. And he's giving us this new picture that under this headship of Jesus, we have leadership together. In fact, in verses 21 through 33, 14 times, Paul refers either to our relationship with Christ or Christ-like behavior as the center and foundation for this marriage relationship. 
He's using this reconciliation of relationship under the umbrella of Christ-like example. So through this lens of culture, knowing more about Ephesus and who Paul is writing to, let's see what Christ's example of love and leadership looks like. Verses 21 through 24 is what I'm going to read now and dive into some of this hard language that we have to look a little bit more closely at in the, in the original language of the Greek and submit to each other out of respect for Christ. For example, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. A husband is the head of his wife like Christ is the head of the church. That is the savior of the body. So wives submit to their husbands in everything like the church submits to Christ. Big deep breath here. These are lots of submit and head and big words that in our English language feel a little confusing. But I'm going to kind of propose there's some confusion that can be cleared up here by looking back at the original language. See, the word hupatasso is submit. Submit is in verse 21 and then again in 24, but is only in relationship to our respect and to each other out of Christ. So when we look at the, at the verse 21 and submit hupatasso to each other, which is like a reflexive word, out of respect for Christ. Then we go to verse 22, which is where some of the confusion has come from. Because, for example, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. The interesting part here is this word submit is borrowed from verse 21. The word hupatasso is not in the verse 22. It's only in verse 21. And the word that's used here is a word called idios. Now, the reason that, they, that the translators have put submit in there is because in the English language, it's really hard to understand what the original Greek was trying to say. The original Greek writers, readers would have understood the, the, uh, the reuse of 21 into 22, but in English, we had to repeat it. This actually didn't even happen until after 350 A.D., that the English, that the word submit was added into the manuscript. So the original manuscript does not have the word submit in verse 22. But let me tell you a little bit more about idios. Idios is really this claim that it's one to another. So it's a claim that a wife is connected to her husband. So the, the verse, for example, wives connected to the, their husband as if to the Lord, is a little bit more of a clear way to read this with the original idios word in there. Now, if you read on uh, verse 24, so wives submit, that's actually also idios, connected to their husband. So wives submit to their husbands in everything like the church submits to Christ. Now, hippotasso is back there, describing how the church, us, the church, submits to Christ under this headship of Jesus' leadership. The other confusing word here is the word head. Now, I've had the privilege of preaching on this before and uh, digesting a little bit what head means, but head is the word kephale. Now, kephale is seen in verse 23, for the husband is the head kafale of the wife, as Christ is the head, kafale of the church, his body of which he is the, the savior. 
Now, this is actually a literary structure that Paul is using in the original Greek language. I'll talk about that in a second. But if you think about a head for a minute, when we have a head on our body, it is the way we breathe, taking a deep breath. It's the way we eat. I luckily had some more breakfast between services. It's where our brain is located that is the control center for our body. And Paul is trying to give us as many metaphors here as possible so that everyone can understand what he's trying to say with this scripture. He's talked about the body of, the, uh, the body of Christ in relationship to who we are as the church. He's talked about marriage as we are the bride of Christ. And now he's taking it back and saying, you together are an image of this body of Christ. You together in your marriages are this beautiful allegory of what I'm trying to say here. And if you didn't get it about the marriage one, let me tell you about your own body because we're all part of one body. So the head is the head of the body. It's for breathing, for, for food, for, it's where our brain is located, and is also the source which is really what head is more better, a better translation for this word head. The source, the provider. It is the provider for our body. So when you look back at verse 23, for the husband is the provider of the wife, as Christ is the provider of the church, the source of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. What Paul's really trying to, to explain here is Christ is the head of the church, which is also, he's also the Savior. Interesting observation about this passage is the word exosousia, which means authority, which is about that power piece, is not used in this passage at all. Paul's not trying to talk about authority here. He's trying to talk about our relationship one to another in relationship to how we should live now that Christ has come and who we are now. Now, this could still be a little controversial in this day. Yes, Paul is suggesting wives are to follow their husband's lead. But let's hear how Paul is asking husbands to lead. In verse 25, he says, As for husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her. He did this, Christ, to make her holy by washing her in a bath of water with the word. He did this, Christ, to present himself with a splendid church, one without any sort of stain or wrinkle on her clothes, but rather one that is holy and blameless. That's how husbands ought to love their wives, in the same way as they do their own bodies, Anyone who loves his, li- his wife loves himself. Verse 25. Think about this again. As for husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What a beautiful picture of sacrifice Paul's trying to paint here. And then he brings back this body thing. In the same way as they do their own bodies, anyone who loves his wife loves himself. He talks more about the feeding and caring for himself a little, la- a little later. Genesis is using this body image. Paul is using this body image from earlier in the book. And then he refers to Genesis 2 
and talks about the marriage unit in Genesis 2, the, um, the reason for marriage. This is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two of them will become one body. He's referring all the way back to how we are created in the image of God, that we are reflecting God's image more perfectly together. In verse 33, in any case, as for you individually, each of you should love his wife as himself, and wives should respect their, husband, their husbands. There's so much reflexive language in here. And there's so much pointing to one thing, this mutuality, this picture of mutuality under Christ. Loving like Christ, true love like Christ, is giving up our own plans, our purposes, and our pleasures for one another. This is our call in covenant relationships with what our, lo- what our relationships with our loved ones are to look like. And man, this kind of leadership, this kind of loving leadership, any one of us would love to follow if someone is laying down themselves you would want to follow that kind of a love. I was in a discipleship training program, and this was right out of high school. I was 18, barely, and I was given this compliment. And I had no idea what it meant at the time because I was just coming out of my own personal household, the one I was raised in. You fear the Lord more than anyone I have ever met. What did that mean? I literally was like, huh? Thank you? You know. I thought it was a compliment. And I do believe it is a compliment. But what it did mean is that it was the first time someone identified my actions as a belief system, as fear of the Lord. But let me tell you where some of those actions came from. I was spanked a lot as a child so that I would be happy and obedient Every time this obedience was tied not only to my obedience of my parents, but my obedience of God. This was common in the community I grew up in. Someone in the book, in the community wrote a book about it. No joke, it was called How to Be the Parents of Happy and Obedient Children. (laughs) Did it. Um, And this was common in the community that I grew up in. They were, you know... They were doing what they were advised by their spiritual leaders. We do that. We follow our spiritual leaders. It's wise to follow spiritual leaders. But there were some mistakes that were made here. We lived in this Christian community, which is a really long, another story, where wild faith and following God's call had led to some amazing things. You could see it all around you that this fear of the Lord, this obedience to do what God had called us to do, had great yield in what God was doing in the community around us. The problem was, through my child eyes, what I saw and heard around me as a child was fear of not doing what God was calling us to do. And the consequences of not doing what God was calling us to do felt severe. Like, separation from God for eternity, severe. The consequences in my home were also severe for not obeying my parents. 
because it was viewed not only as against their rules, but they were signs of my disobedience to God and it had eternal consequences. Of course, I would fear the Lord if not obeying meant burning in the pit of hell for life. I was scared to the submission in the name of loving and honoring God. I've since had lots of therapy. (laughs) And I got through that without crying. I've really worked this out within myself. And with God and with my very apologetic, grace-filled parents who said they made a mistake. Because we all make mistakes. And the irony is, all of this is probably the reason that I'm standing here today. That I was called to be a director of children's ministry. Because God breathes new life into things that are hard. Into these dry bones that could have been buried and bitter. But God breathed new life into it in my own life. Amen? Fear has been used to keep people in abusive relationships. Fear has been used as distortion of what God is really, really trying to say here, of what Jesus really came to do. Fear has been used to treat others as less than, to give people power who use it in ungodly and and destructive ways. Fear has been used wrong. Christ-like leadership is very different. And as we heard so far from Paul, and he even articulates it even more. Follow me here into this next section because what he's saying is revolutionary. Because he goes on to speak of more of the household. Maybe if he was being daring, he would have spoken of women and wives and, and husbands honoring their wives. That was revolutionary for a, because in that time, wives were nothing. They were a possession. They weren't a value. And Paul is giving a wife value and asking husbands to lay down their lives for them. If you were a husband or a master in that time, and you're hearing this message for the very first time, wives submit would have been like, thumbs up. And then pretty soon, you're starting to go like this. It would have been revolutionary by the time that Paul gets to this next section. Because in this historical context, they had no value. As for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with the promise attached, so that things will go well with you, and you will live a long time in the land. As for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. This is actually one of the passages that was used in that special book. Um, And one of the reasons I had to take some deep breaths going into this sermon. But listen to how beautiful this is. Children, it's like an exhortation. Obey your parents so it will go well with you. This is a direction all the way back to the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy 6. This is an exhortation to parents and to adults. 
to raise their children in the loving ways of God, to follow God, to talk about it when we wake up and when we lay down and write it on our doorposts. This is an exhortation to show our children how to follow God rightly. See, children need boundaries, and they need to feel safe. They need this discipline of knowing what is right and what is wrong. That is what we're called to as parents and as the church, as we raise this generation that's in our midst. And parents and adults, we're called to know the children that we're around. We're called to see them, who God's made them to be, and call them valuable. To tell them that they're image bearers. And to breathe life into what we see God is calling out of them and has made them to be. This is a beautiful exhortation and encouragement to parents in this day and age to love and care for their children and see them as God sees them. And then he goes on to slaves. Even more shocking. Slaves, obey your masters with sincere devotion to Christ, carrying out God's will from the heart as though serving the Lord, the Lord will reward. Slave or free. He's telling slaves, do your work as unto the Lord, even ungratified, even in the position you're in. Do your work as unto the Lord. And then he says this to masters. Masters, treat your slaves in a way that honors the Lord. Both of you have the same master in heaven. This master does not distinguish between people on the basis of status. Imagine that. Imagine hearing from their lens in Ephesus that everyone was equal. That that there was no such thing as a slave or a master under this headship of Christ, that they were all of value, and that the master, God, the head of all, would judge them all equally. Now, it's still controversial here why Paul doesn't abolish slavery. And as I've thought about this a lot this week, I thought, you know, maybe it was mind-blowing for Paul to even think about how this society could function outside of the way the society was running. We have that in our own history as well, here in the United States. But he does refer to our equality under Christ, which was still amazing at that time to call us equal I wonder if he couldn't even imagine how big God's plans were at this point. In Hebrews 5, there's this beautiful scripture that talks about what Christ-like leadership was about. Verse 7, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. According to this scripture, 
Christ was heard from his father because of his reverent submission. But it doesn't say that Christ went like jumping and leaping with joy into this reverent submission. No, he offered prayers and petitions and cries and tears. He was grieved by it. But he learned obedience through the suffering. And because of this, he gained this source of power, this power that he used to lay down his own life for us. We were sitting in teaching team on Monday, and we read through the scripture in Hebrews as we considered this scripture in Ephesians, and all of a sudden it went silent in the room. And someone just said, this is mind-blowing. If you put these two together and think about it, it's mind-blowing because leading like Christ looks like submission and obedience. And in that way, does that mean that wives, children, and slaves' submission in this passage looks like authority? It's this upside-down kingdom of how as we lose ourselves, we gain this power of the Holy Spirit to do the things that we would never be able to do on our own. Parker Palmer said this. I've been thinking about this all week. Good leadership comes from people who have penetrated their own inner darkness and arrived at the place where we are at one with one another. People who can lead the rest of us to a place of hidden wholeness because they have been there and they know the way. Christ has been there. Christ led through submission to his Father and obedience even to this point of death in order to gain the authority to speak into our lives. And as we follow Christ's example, this is what real love and leadership looks like. It's a call to lay down ourselves in order that we can love each other better. Love each other the way Christ loves. We are all one under the headship of Christ. So this old tree that I passed and sat and thought about all this week has given me lots of thoughts about what this would look like in another allegory, in another picture of what something like this could look like outside of the conversation of marriage, outside of the, this relationship of the body, but in, in looking at creation and what creation looks like. This old tree, this stump, had passed away but was given new life by the, growing, the tree that's growing out of it and remains growing today. It's a new creation out of something that has been old. And this new tree is dependent. It's dependent on this old stump. It's so dependent that its roots had grown around it. And it was subject to this dead body, this dead stump, as it grew to be this new creation. And both of these species are mutually submitting to one another for this higher purpose of created life. 
Can you see how beautiful this picture is? This picture in our creation of how we can, how God creates new life as we learn to submit and let some of our stuff go. This passage is calling us to look at the relationships around us. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can change. We can be renewed. We can have new life. There is hope for humanity, for our broken humanity right now. Under this headship of Christ, as we honor and sacrificially love each other like Christ and lead others with their interests and best in mind, in mind over our own. There may be relationships in each of our lives that need some attention. They need this kind of self-sacrificing love. And through this passage, we're called to examine our hearts and actions and make relationships right. To put down ourselves and to come under the headship of Christ who is asking us to love sacrificially so that we can experience this new life. And there's good news today. It was for this reason that Christ came. So we would have the opportunity to see an example of this beautiful kind of life, this sacrificial life, and then to be filled with the Holy Spirit that does that work in us. Today is Communion Sunday, and the perfect way to proclaim, again, your devotion and commitment to being under such authority. Because that's what Christ is inviting us to. Again, this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. It's a proclamation today. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he said, This is my cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim new life. Everyone is invited to this table. Everyone is invited to be part of this new life that God's inviting us to. The table is now open. I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward to serve communion.